welcome to Revolutionary Women. My name is Tess Silverman. Women around the world are constantly creating ways to make a difference in their communities, and today's guest is no exception. My guest today is Laureen A. Kelly. Laureen founded L.A. Kelly Communications, Inc. in 1990 after her child with hemophilia was born. She wanted to provide practical educational materials for families with bleeding disorders. Lori is the author of 10 books on bleeding disorders, including Raising a Child with Hemophilia and Success as a Hemophilia Leader. She was founder and publisher of the parent empowerment newsletter, PEN, for 31 years and PEN's Insurance Pulse for 11 years. Lori also founded Project SHARE, a humanitarian program that donates millions of dollars worth of blood clotting medicine annually to impoverished patients in developing countries. She is founder and president of Save One Life, a nonprofit child sponsorship agency for children with bleeding disorders in developing countries. Lori was born in Springfield, Massachusetts, and received her bachelor's degree in child psychology from Regis College. She worked as a psychologist with handicapped children and adults for four years before earning her master's degree in international economics and business from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Lori worked for six years as an economic consultant at DRI McGraw-Hill before devoting her life to helping patients with bleeding disorders. Hi, Lori. Welcome to Revolutionary Woman. How are you today? Hi, Tess. I'm doing well, thanks, and thanks for inviting me. Thank you for coming on. Um, for those who don't know um, anything about you, would you, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am the mother, first and foremost, of a an adult son with hemophilia, a blood clotting disorder, and I have two other adult children now as well. Um, I live in Massachusetts, and I've run my own company for about 32 years now, wow. uh, helping people with hemophilia become educated about their disorder and then also helping out uh, overseas in developing countries. Wonderful. Great. So I read that you come from a family with six brothers. Is that true? And, and lots of pets. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> lots of pets. So how did you like being the only girl? Were you the only girl surrounded by six brothers? Yes, I was the only girl uh, with six brothers, and uh, our ages span 10 years, so we were wow. kind of all crammed in together. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> How was that? How was it surrounded by all of <laughs> all of these males around you, except for your mom, of course, but, you know. Right, right. Yeah, my mom and then also my grandmother lived with us, and she was there, just a wonderful grandmother. Oh. Um, you know, it's when you grow up, you don't really know any different. That's your normal, so I thought... <laughs> I thought everybody was the way we were, and obviously when you go off to college, and mm-hmm. especially I went from that environment to an all-girl college, I remember calling my mom saying, I think this was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> these, these people here, all they do is talk, and they, oh they talk gosh. and they emote. I mean, I'm used to monosyllabic answers, and you know, mm, like... That's so funny. Yeah, it was pretty funny. So um, wow. yeah, I realized at some point that I had a very uh, different kind of childhood. A very unique childhood, I'm sure, was like, surrounded by so many... Um, so many males, but did, did that kind of, did, did that, um, like you said, it, it was it different going forward because you were coming out into the world and you were surrounded by both sexes, you know, it was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I actually, um, not having, I had female cousins that were my friends, you know, we played together a lot, but we were all pretty much tomboys growing up in the 60s, um, mm. you know, free spirited tomboys. I, we had parents that let us 
be ourselves, which was wonderful, not try to conform to any uh, norms mm-hmm. other than other than our faith. You know, we went to church every Sunday. We filled up a whole pew, quite mm-hmm. a sideshow. Mm-hmm. But um, I think, you know, we had very enlightened parents in that regard that allowed us to pursue our interests, be outdoors mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, wow. they, okay. they took us camping. They took us traveling across the country. So we, you know, we never had a whole lot of money, but they found ways to enrich our lives with uh, experiences, I think. That's awesome. So I also read that growing up, you had wanted to be a veterinarian, but that changed when you went to college in Boston, graduated with a degree in child psychology, and worked at a state institution as a child psychologist. So why did you choose to specialize in child psychology? Um, yeah, I love animals first and foremost. You know, I just to this day I just love animals mm. and any any kind from insects to birds to fish. I mean, I just love all living creatures and mm. um, always wanted to be a veterinarian. But mm. my mom kind of talked me out of. My mom was a school teacher, and I think she felt that uh, if I were a school teacher too, then I could have holidays and summers off to mm. be with my future children. Oh, but okay. um, you know, she. Unfortunately, she raised me to be a free thinker, and, and <laughs> you can't have it both ways. So right. I kept saying, like, eh, it's not what I really want to do. I love teaching, mm-hmm. but I can't see myself in a classroom all the time. I just, but I do love children. We, I grew up in a family where we just treasured children, loved mm-hmm. children. Both my grandmother, my mother, um, my aunts. I mean, we just love children. Mm-hmm. I have 22 first cousins. So oh, wow. <laughs> and we're all, yeah, we're all very close in age. So we were all. Uh, you're just a big, big family, big, uh, a big sprawling family, and it continues to grow. In mm-hmm. fact, I went to my brother's uh, retirement party for the police force, mm-hmm. and someone said, look, Miss Massachusetts is here, beautiful, <laughs> tall, striped, blonde. And I said, who invited I mean, come on, my brother's not that important. And they That's said, so she's funny. your cousin. Oh, and I my said, gosh. Oh, we have so many cousins. Yeah, so I think, um, I think veterinarian became child psychologist when I, uh, again, when I, decided, okay, mom thinks it's not a good idea to be a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe I'll, and I do love working with children, but I don't want to be a teacher. I want to mm-hmm. be something a little bit different than what my mother is. So mm-hmm. I decided child psychologist, and I really uh, just loved um, the field of child psychology. Mm-hmm. But then in the 80s, you went from child psychology to going to grad school for international business and economics. What was the draw with, econ- with economics? Well, um, I'm not good at math. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of counterintuitive, but uh-huh. I know that I, I love psychology and I love children, and I mm-hmm. thought I was going to work with terminally ill children. And mm-hmm. I realized um, I worked for my co- my college professor, and we actually got some uh, psychology research published when I was only 21. My wow. name was in the was in the article, and I just found out I love research. I love researching. Oh. I love experimental psychology. I love the numbers, the statistics. I like, oh, okay. you know, proving a theory. I really fell into uh, less the clinical side and more the research and the numbers. But I know that I'm not that great in math. Mm-hmm. So uh, I like applied mathematics, like statistics. So I decided, um, and also don't forget, it was the 80s. Mm-hmm. 80s was the uh, the dynasty era where everybody dressed up to the nines mm-hmm. when they went off to work. And um, the field of psychology wasn't so glamorous. And I thought, you know, I want to I want to try something that I have a family full of civil servants. Mm-hmm. I want to do something completely different than my family. Wow. And I never knew anyone who went into private business. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to be the first in our family to go into private business. So I decided I would just completely switch gears. Um, I also found in college, one of my passions is foreign, um, you know, 
foreign affairs, uh, mm. the international world. I started reading voraciously about it. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon, um, thinking about what do I want to do for the rest of my life, uh, I found that I was extremely drawn to traveling, to learning about other cultures. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had this, I love children, but I just love this idea of studying politics. And mm-hmm. uh, then I got this idea, I want to go work for the State Department. Oh, wow. uh, and, you know, it'd be a world, you know, it'd be like, I kept joking with everyone, I'm going to be the first female Secretary of State. I told everybody that. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to be the first female. Yeah, I set my goals very, very high. And then, um, you know, at, at some point, I met my future husband, and he said, well, I'm not going to D.C., and I'm not going to New York <laughs> City. I'm staying right here in Boston. And so I had to make a decision hmm. uh, whether I would really leave and pursue this life of on the road and politics. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and then I decided, well, I'll take that love of research and statistics and apply it to the international world, but I'll stay here in Boston. Mm-hmm. So that kind of led to my master's degree in international business and economics, but I got a job locally with an economic forecasting company. Wow. Oh my gosh. And how long were you an economist? How long were you in that industry? I was there for six years and I did um, I did research, but then I also did sales and marketing, which I found I had a knack for. I had a real knack for sales. I loved it. I loved meeting with clients. Um, I observed my bosses and my bosses were all young, uh, you know, young men on the rise, you know, mm-hmm. the corporate ladder. Mm-hmm. And again, for any of your listeners who ever watched Tootsie, mm-hmm. uh, the movie Tootsie, yeah. that was no joke. That was our environment. Uh, women really? were kind of, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Women were second-class citizens. There was uh, the glass ceiling. Uh-huh. Um, I remember the CEO of our company walking right by me in the hallway, never saying hello to me, just oh my ignoring gosh. me. And now I deal with CEOs that would blow him out of the water huh. all the time. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a realization that, this environment's very suffocating for women and especially a woman with children. Mm. You know, eventually mm-hmm. I had children and then there's not going to be really much of a future for you there. So I, I but I did, I love the environment. I learned a lot, mm. a, a tremendous amount of on business, what to do and what not to do, how to negotiate contracts. The biggest thing I learned was when you meet with clients, what do they, you know, find out what they need, what are their needs and then go back and find ways to meet their needs. And I just love doing that. So I, w- I ended up being pretty, good at my job not the not the economic research so much mm-hmm. but uh the sales and marketing that's amazing i mean you really put your you know your your practice into especially with regards to being you know um in front of people i mean being surrounded by a ton of family i'm sure also played a big part because you've already i mean your family is your social network pretty much you know they go from that into the business sector you know you're you're comfortable already in front of other people yeah i think growing up you know i do have to say growing up with all men um and my my brothers are guys you know they mm-hmm. they're geared they love their motorcycles their cars mm-hmm. they're straight shooters um they're very proactive guys even now they're just always on the go mm-hmm. um but i learned how to i learned how men think and i learned mm-hmm. how men speak and mm-hmm. you get right to the point you're direct you know around the bush mm-hmm. women i'd see you know in that era anyway women had a very different way of communicating much more roundabout way a mm-hmm. um, lot of undercurrents it was it wasn't as direct so i found that i tend to be very direct and sometimes and i guess going to an all-girl college i had to learn to soften up a bit and learn how to be more of a girl <laughs> so uh but they but knowing how men think and how they think and react um and behave in business really mm-hmm. helped out um to stand my ground, to yeah. get what I need, um, to explain myself, to communicate with them. It, it all really helped. But it really helps wow. to be a woman, too. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, yeah. So, okay, so 
1990, you published a book titled Raising a Child with Hemophilia, and you quit your job as an economist. And that, what prompted you to write the book? Um, yeah, I was, I was, you know, working full time. It was very difficult to have a child with a medical need uh, mm-hmm. and go to work each day. Date, finding daycare was kind of a nightmare, but then that resolved. My uh, son ended up being with a woman who also had a son with hemophilia. We mm-hmm. met through our uh, support group at the hospital, and she's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So that was taken care of. But um, I guess we had a we kind of had a bad episode one day. We, hemophilia. You have to remember for your listeners that back in 1987, 1989, we mm-hmm. didn't have we didn't have cell phones. Right. I mean, we yeah. we had pagers. We had yeah. nothing. Oh yeah, I remember. There pagers. was no. Yeah, pagers. There was no book on hemophilia. You couldn't go to the library. You couldn't look anything up. It was just this, you were handed a sentence almost, and you didn't know anything about how to find out more about it. You were tethered to your hospital, to the mm. doctors. My doctors didn't even have children. I mean, they were young. We were all young. So wow. you really didn't have any kind of idea of what was going on. So uh, one day, unfortunately, and as I mentioned, going off to work, you're wearing silk dresses, high mm. heels. Mm-hmm jewelry, you're all dressed up because it's the 80s. And I was carrying my son into daycare and I slipped on the driveway, on, like on mulch or something. And he fell right out of my arms. Wow. Um, he was only about uh, a year old, I think, uh-huh. and hit, hit his head on the driveway. And so the whole rest of that day, we rushed him to the hospital. We were there all day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I learned a lot that day, you know, um, watching the doctors, they were unsure. They didn't even know what to do. They were wow. probably five five doctors standing around him oh, trying to say like, what do we do? What do we do? Do we do an x-ray? And my husband, my husband knew a lot about medical and science because he was into biotechnology. He had a mm. degree in biotechnology, but he was like, this is ridiculous. The doctors yeah. don't even know what to do. Wow. So we, we ended up talking to a lot of parents at our support group meeting and they had great ideas. Huh. And it, and it slowly started to dawn on me that parents have tons of information that we need, but we need to find those parents. We, we don't have, Google search. We don't have Facebooks. Mm-hmm. We had to, so I actually had to um, put a announcement in one of the industry newsletters mm. asking if, if parents had children with hemophilia to call me. Uh, we couldn't even email me, but call me right. and, you know, I want to hear your story because we're writing a book. I just got this idea to uh, to write the book. I guess I, I went to my support group meeting and I was telling the story of how I dropped my son and the guilt I felt and mm-hmm. the craziness of the hospital. And my nurse said, I think for therapy, you know, why don't you write about it? Mm. (laughs) Calm down and write about it. And I love writing. So um, later on, I said, what do you think if I turn this episode and what I'm learning from the parents into a book? And she said, well, that's a great idea, but that's a big undertaking. But it soon became, once I started it, I Uh could not do it because so many, I had 50 people call me the first week. It was crazy. People who had, mothers who had never spoken to another mother of a kid with hemophilia in their life. Oh and they, they said, you're the first one who's ever asked hmm. what our experiences are. So the book kind of took on a life of its own. And I did it while I was still working hmm. and pregnant with my second child. So oh, my geez. days were, yeah, get the, ch- get the babies, get one baby off to school and then go to work full time, come home, take care of him, put him to bed at eight and then work all night wow. uh, on the book for uh, about 10 months. And huh. literally stopped the night before I gave birth to my second child. Oh my gosh! But wow. it was a labor of love. It was absolutely a labor of love. So I felt I was doing something important for the community. So I, I didn't mind the hours. And mm. and my husband at the time he really helped out a lot with the medical and scientific aspects mm. of it. So that's we were a good amazing. Team. That's amazing. Yeah. So can people still find your book 
Racing a Child? Oh, yeah. The team it's in its, um, yeah, it's in the, I think the sixth edition now. It's been completely updated as of, I think, 2016. Oh, it cool. probably needs to be updated again. So, yes, it's, um, you can go to our website, get mm-hmm. free copies out to everybody. Mm-hmm. It's for free. It's the uh, only book on hemophilia available in the U.S. Um, really? Now, the that's, rest the world. that's yeah. surprising. Yeah, I mean, there's books. People have written their memoirs and stuff, but this is the only really comprehensive how-to book that's huh. available. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's it's not like it's a hidden secret. I mean, <laughs> hemophilia mm-hmm. is is a condition, and it's it's, you know, obviously families with children have it, so I don't understand why that's the only one that is like a how-to book for parents well i think um i think it, it is there's another book by a hematologist i think but it's that's more of a kind of a medical book right and that but came out that of... came out only a few years ago okay. there's another book out called dear hemophilia written by a friend of mine but that's her personal experience and it's mm-hmm. faith-based mm-hmm. so that's her own personal experience uh right. dealing with her own depression and anxiety this book of mine is not about me. It's about how to. Here's your yeah. child. Mm-hmm. This is what you're going to be experiencing. This is These are the stages you go through. Here's how to yeah. uh, choose your medicine. These are right. the medicines available. You know, it's really is a how-to book. I think it's a big undertaking. It has to mm. be. Um, it's just not something you just want to do for the heck of it. It's, mm-hmm. uh, we're working on a, another. Yeah, it's a lot of research. We're working on a book, uh, the fourth, fourth or fifth, I think the fifth edition of a book called uh, A Guide to Living with Von Willebrand Disease. And von Willebrand Disease is a blood condition similar to hemophilia. Mm-hmm. And we have been editing and working on this book for like five years. So really? it, it is. Um, it has to go through incredible legal, medical, and regulatory scrutiny. So it's not for the faint of heart. It's oh, a lot wow. of, a lot of work. Yeah. That's, oh, I'm, I'm still like stunned that, you know, you're the, fir- you're the first person that I've spoken to who has a how-to book about a condition that, you know, that so many, or I mean, from what I've seen or, or read about, is like so many children have. And it's not like it, it, I didn't even know that this existed. You know, that's really, yeah. that's kind of, well, I'm glad it's, I'm glad, it, you know, it's being out in the forefront now. And I'm glad it's now in its sixth revision. Is that what you said? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. So you also founded... So when you quit your job, you founded two organizations, um, L.A. Kelly Communications and Save One Life. Can you tell me first what L.A. Communications, LA Kelly Communications is and what prompted you to start that? Yeah, well, that, that, when I wrote the book, um, and again, I was still working full time, the, um, when the book was published, I felt in 1990 I'd done my life's dream. I wrote a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How cool is that? Mm-hmm. And I didn't. And I thought that was the end of it. But when the book was published and distributed, and again, it was distributed free of charge. We mm-hmm. had uh, funding from the pharmaceutical company oh. uh, that underwrote the book. And so the deal was um, I would be paid for my services, but I want the book to be given away free to parents. Mm-hmm. The last thing they need is to have to pay to learn about the, this disorder that they don't even want. Right. So yeah. Um, to this date, we don't charge parents for the book. It's still given for 30 years later. It's still given away free of charge. That's amazing. Okay. It's it's it, to me, it's like the right thing to do. So, um, on, when the book was published, you now there's a whole industry that I'm aware of. There's the pharmaceutical companies that make the drugs, the blood clotting drugs. Then there's the specialty pharmacies that distribute the drug, mm-hmm. and there are the treatment centers, uh, specialized treatment centers that take care of the patients. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., there's about 20,000 patients. 
Wow. So um, the specialty pharmacy started to contact me and they said, this book is fantastic. Can you do something like that for us? And I oh, said, what wow. do you mean? Well, the pharmaceutical company that sponsored my book put their logo on the book, of course, is uh -huh. to show their sponsorship. So they wanted something similar. They want to get their name, their logo on a book um, mm -hmm. because it's good marketing, it's goodwill, and right. it's putting back money back into the community. So I started thinking about um, ideas. And I have to say, almost all of my ideas come from other people. You know, my nurse had said, you should write a story, which turned into the book. Mm -hmm. a, mom, a mom from Pennsylvania called me and said, I love the book because you have the facts and how-to interspersed with people's stories. So mm. we had sections where people share their stories. And she said, is there a way to keep that going? There's no other way for me to, I will live out in the boonies. I can't get to the treatment center, so I can't go to a support group meeting. Could we have some kind of a newsletter? So oh. I decided, okay, these specialty pharmacies are looking for a project to fund. How about a newsletter? Wow. So we started um, a newsletter in uh -huh. 1990 that I just terminated a, at February of this year. So like 32 really? years later. Okay. Yeah. It was the longest-running newsletter on hemophilia in the country. And I just felt like it wasn't really needed anymore because we have Internet and Facebook, mm -hmm. and people mm -hmm. are just so much more educated now. Mm -hmm. But when I started, there was no way for parents to really contact each other. So this newsletter started off with a circulation of, like, 50, and mm -hmm. we're up to about 4,000-something now. That's incredible. So, um, huh. yeah, so that gave me an idea. Then somebody else said, well, what about a children's book? Because I have nothing to read to my child about his wow. disorder. So um, as people got connected, they shared their ideas with me. And so I pursued it and found funding for it. And again, all the books are provided free of charge to mm -hmm. parents. So That's wild. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. And then from that, you started, um, so LA, Communica LA Kelly Communications was up and running. And then you decided to create Save One Life. So what inspired you to create Save One Life and what is Save One Life about? Um, well, again, other people's ideas that were tossed to me that I took them and I thought, okay, I can do something with this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, my company was started in 1990 with the publication of the book. Mm -hmm. Then in, in 1996, uh, the Bayer Corporation approached me, uh, the local representative here was a wonderful woman. She, she approached me and said, you know, I know you've got a background in international studies and we're looking for someone like you to go into developing countries and help build up their hemophilia organizations. Like wow. they're, the patients are not organized like they are here in the United States. Huh. There's no um, patients, so they're not educated. There's mm -hmm. no uh, unity. Would you be willing to go into other countries? Now, of course, a pharmaceutical company has ulterior motives. Mm. They, they're hoping that the yeah. patients would organize and eventually lobby the government for treatment, which is normal. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what you want people to do. You want the medicine to be uh, bought by the government and distributed. But uh, so I don't see anything wrong in a company uh, funding a project like that. Mm -hmm. So my goal was um, I created a program through my company, my private company, to go into the developing world and pinpoint leaders, you know, identify leaders, mm -hmm. uh, train them, uh, train them, equip them help them create goals, guidelines, board of directors, the whole nine yards. And so mm -hmm. I wrote a book about that too, how to create and develop a hemophilia nonprofit in a developing country uh, wow. based on like 10 years worth of experience. So that program lasted 10 years. Uh -huh. in, in the process of going to the developing countries and trying to find these leaders and trying to educate them, in the meantime, their kids were suffering horribly. And I mean, mm. just things you can't believe. The, the uh, bleeding destroys your joints causes 
it can cause brain damage, it can cause blindness, mm. uh, unchecked bleeding. So I realized we've, I can't help them become leaders unless we get medicine to them. So mm. I, I created a program to look for extra medicine that was unwanted and have that transferred to developing countries. Mm. And then that led eventually to um, a trip to Pakistan in 2000, wow. where, um, and that was for the leadership, you know, to do leadership training to uh-huh. uh, a group of patients there and doctors. And I ask, I always ask when I go overseas, I want to go to the patient's homes. I don't just want to go to the clinics or to mm-hmm. the Ministry of Health. Mm-hmm. My, I want to go in from the ground up, so not the top down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we do have another organization called the World Federation of Hemophilia that works with health ministries and government agencies mm-hmm. to make long-term sustainable changes. But I don't want to do what they're doing. I want to go and do it differently. Right. So what nobody was doing was going in at ground zero into the patient homes, mm-hmm. find out what their needs are. Kind of like when going back to the economist days where you go to a Go to New York City, meet with a client. What are their needs? Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. you don't know what your customer needs or what your client needs unless you sit with them in their environment. So um, using that same principle, I went into patients' homes and wow, mm-hmm. he, I learned so much. And so in, I was in the home of a father with two little boys with hemophilia on the Arabian Sea in mm-hmm. Pakistan in Karachi. And his house was just a hovel. It was just a two-room hovel with a little cooking pot. They owned nothing. Mm. The children would suffer these terrible bleeds. And the father only earned with the equivalent of $20 a month. And he wow. said, you know, through the interpreter, he said, I really want to send my eldest to um, school, mm-hmm. not public school. It's too dangerous. I want to have a tutor for him, but it costs $20 a month. That's my whole salary. Wow. And again, it was like a light bulb going off. And I said, we can do this. We can fix this. Uh-huh. This is easy. I just need to set up a nonprofit and, mm. and then we can start a child sponsorship program. So, and, and at the same time I was thinking this, a mom from New York wrote to me and she said, uh, Hey, have you ever thought about like a save the children kind of a mm-hmm. organization? And I just mm-hmm. said, Oh, there are my signs, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, so I, she wrote to me in handwriting, you know, a handwritten letter and I, I still have that letter. And I just oh. said, uh, this is a great idea and we can do wow. this. So, yeah. So, so, let me go back to you being in Pakistan. So what did they look at you like, was she crazy? Why does she want to be in someone's home? And, you know, I mean, a lot of nonprofit organizations, they do their work, like you said, with different organizations, with other organizations. But with you, right. you really wanted to go from grassroots, like the ground up. Um, and was that? You know, did they look at look at that as like, well, you know, that's kind of weird. Why would you want to do that? Or were they saying, you know, this is amazing that you really want to put yourself out there and and really see what's going on? They they were. I have to say, um, you know, unfortunately, we in the West have such a, a negative view of Pakistan, and mm. it's not founded. It's not well founded. Um, if you only looked at our our politics on the other side of the world and looking at U.S. politics, you'd think we were all crazy. Mm. Um, the Pakistanis are more like us than not like us. And mm. they are, um, I find them to be among the most amazing people on earth. I just love working with them. So, yeah, when I went there, it was, I'm sorry, it was actually 1999 when I went there. Mm-hmm. So in 1999, Pakistan was very isolated from the rest of the world. Um, I was there for a week and my first trip, I've been there about five times. And oh, my wow. first trip, I never saw another Westerner there the whole time I was there. And wow. I went into parts where I was assured by my colleagues, uh, no white person's ever been in here. It's mm-hmm. the way they put it. Mm-hmm. Um, I found them to be 
you know, incredibly gracious. Mm-hmm. Uh, their culture, their culture is one of treating the guest like family. I mean, that is mm-hmm. absolutely their culture. They welcome you into their homes. They, they're honored to have you come into their homes. Wow. And uh, to this day, they've always treated me. They're like family now. I mean, we, oh. we joke around and it's That's been many awesome. years. Mm-hmm. And we still stay in touch daily almost because we're always trying to um, help them out. And wow. um, when, I, when I went over there for the first time, they were just kind of ragtag. They weren't, the hemophilia organization really wasn't on track yet. Mm-hmm. And I can say now they're one of the best. They're just fantastic. They've got great leaders, mm-hmm. great doctors. So, yeah, they treated me so nice that um, my friends in India are always joking with me, like, you like Pakistan better than us because they treat you <laughs> like royalty. I'm like, you better believe it. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's really incredible. That, you know, to get that firsthand experience and then to be able to say, you know what? Yeah, we need to do something <laughs> and we can do something. So yeah. that's that's really wonderful. Um, d- did you have an aha moment with, you know, with LA Kelly Communications as well as Save One Life? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think the aha moments were just like, when somebody presents an idea or when you're standing there, like, like with that father who says, I just need $20 a month. Mm. And it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great idea. We can do it. Um, I think that's more like it is just, uh, here's, here's an opportunity to make a difference. Wow. I just want to, you know, when they asked me, first of all, do you want to create a leadership program in developing countries? My first thought is I've never done that. Mm. I've never even done, I've never even attended a leadership conference myself. Mm. But I thought, yeah, there's books out there I can read, I can learn. I'm a, I'm a racist reader. I love to learn and synthesize. I'll put one together. I can do this. So it was just this idea that, yes, I can do this if I put the work into it. That's why make it happen. That's yeah. very cool. So I saw a video on YouTube about Save One Life. And one quote that stuck with me was when you said, we believe that saving one life saves the world. Why do you think that message is so important to convey? I think that, well, first of all, that, that phrase is in the Talmud and also in the Koran. Mm. Um, it's it's uh, not something I made up. Uh, I actually first heard it when I watched the movie Schindler's List. I was pregnant oh. with my third child. And I said, wow. you know, at the very end, they uh, when the uh, Jewish people that he saved gave mm-hmm. him a ring, and it was inscribed on the inside of the ring, he who saves one life saves the world. During the movie of Schindler's List, Schindler kept saying, if I could just save one more, if I could mm. just save one more. And he kept panicking almost that mm-hmm. I just got to save one more. So I think um, for me, I've observed the big, big nonprofits. And for us, it would be the World Federation in mm-hmm. Montreal, mm-hmm. Uh, observing their culture, observing how they handle it. And they're often quoting big statistics. Mm. There's 400,000 people with hemophilia in the world. 75% do not get help. Those numbers are overwhelming to the average mom and dad in America, mm-hmm. let's say. Um, if you're out in Kansas and you get a you know a little family and you're struggling yourself and you hear these numbers, you're like, oh, my gosh, how can I help? Yeah. I'm trying to just help my own kids, you know, yeah. who, are, mm-hmm. who have a bleeding disorder. So for us, we wanted to break it down that it doesn't matter if you're helping 400,000 or if you're helping one. As long as you help somebody, mm-hmm. you know, when I, when I give presentations – I, at the end of my presentation, of course, I always say, if you want to help, you can sponsor a child, you mm-hmm. can do a fundraiser, but you don't even have to do this. Why don't you go to an animal shelter and help out? Why mm-hmm. don't you adopt a kitten? 
Um, go visit the elderly in a nursing home. Do something positive for somebody else. That's the message. Just focus on that one little animal that's been neglected or that one elderly woman in a nursing home that no one visits. Mm. Find find someone in need and make a difference in their life. It, that is how you change the world ultimately. Um, yeah. There are people out there who do the big things with the big numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I'm going to be one of those. I, I like to focus on helping every person I meet, you know, mm-hmm. throughout the day or, you know, I'm the kind of person that when I'm raking leaves and I see worms, I'll move them, you know, like mm-hmm. out of harm's way. You know, it's, it's the idea of um, every day with mindfulness, just make a little difference in the world. And then it's like the uh, analogy of the snowflake falling, you know, it creates a big snowball. It has a snowball effect. Mm-hmm. Every little good deed you do to help another human being or another life mm-hmm. doesn't even have to be a human will make the world a better place. So I think our, our motto is save one life because we really believe that focusing on the individual will eventually make the community better. That's beautiful. I love that. Okay, so you, from what I read, you've distributed 3 million of direct aid since 2000 to about 2,000 or more people through sponsorships. Was that hard to do then? And how has it been since the pandemic? Yeah, it was hard to do. When I started Save on Life and the idea of it, you know, we were in a financial boom. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you remember back in the early 2000s, we yeah. were, you know, it was good times in America. And then unfortunately, you know, the bubble burst in 2008. Mm-hmm. And the uh, sponsorships, the idea of a sponsorship program, especially in our community when people are already hitting, being hit with big medical bills. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my goal was to target also the companies that made a killing off of hemophilia their profits were Mm -hmm. outrageous and i thought they need to give back not just families but the corporations Mm -hmm. and the corporate leaders need to give back personally so that's one reason why i've become very you know good friends with a lot of ceos because i tell them directly you're making you know you live in a mansion Mm -hmm. you know but look at how these people live and Mm -hmm. you're you've made money off of the drug that could help them so i don't begrudge you your mansion but give back you know you got to give back so, um, yeah, it was hard, you know, at first to get the sponsorships going. And then during after 2008, it was really hard. Mm-hmm. But we never we never quit because I believe the idea is is valid. It, it definitely makes a difference in people's lives. Mm-hmm. But we also realized not everybody wants a one to one relationship. Uh, for example, um, I find that a lot of moms want to do the one to one. But a lot of the dads or the men mm-hmm. don't don't particularly want to get have a one to one relationship with a child overseas. Mm-hmm. However, if you mention hey, we've got a microenterprise grant going. Mm-hmm. Well, they want to give to that. Or right. we've got a summer camp coming up. Could you donate $100 to summer camp? Wow. Yes, they, they like that idea. So we decided that we needed to not only branch out to meet the needs of donors, but also the um, recipients. Mm-hmm. The um, young men with hemophilia and mm-hmm. young women will eventually age out of our program. You don't want them on charity at age 25, at age 30. Mm-hmm. It's like your own kids. You know, you right. don't want your kids living at home until they're 45. Right. You want to get them educated and have them get a job. Mm-hmm. It's very, very hard to do in developing countries, especially when you have a disability or a mm-hmm. disorder. Yep. So our goal was let's get sponsorship throughout childhood. Then let's get them into school or vocational training. And mm-hmm. then let's get them a job. And wow. so at each of those stages, we're trying to think of ways, life, life cycle mm-hmm. programs that will meet their needs along the way. I love that because at each stage, you're really helping them to develop themselves so they can help themselves in the, to, to be independent and then hopefully like give back to their community that way. That's amazing. I love that. 
Yeah, and they have been doing that. One young man in India, I remember, uh, he graduated out of the program. He got a job. And he said, I want to give my sponsorship now to someone else. Oh, that's that was beautiful. really beautiful. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I love that. Yeah, I read it. You, I mean, you, you're in Save, Save One Life. You have these five, I guess, um, I don't know, programs within it. And, and so you had Sponsoring a Child in Need, the Scholarship Awards, the Microenterprise Grants, the Camp Grants, um, and Project Share. Now, what is Project Share? So Project Share was something that my my private company started uh, back in, well, unofficially 1996 and then officially 2002. Mm -hmm. And I just, because I have um, a huge database of families in the United States and companies Mm -hmm. through my publications and my uh, consulting work, um, people knew that I was traveling overseas. You know, they would see it in our newsletters and eventually on social media. Mm -hmm. And so back in 1996, um, people would just say, you know, I know you're going, you've started this leadership training. You're going say to India. I have a few vials that I'm not using. I can't use. I switched product or something. Could, do you want to take them over there? So what, what started off as just a couple of vials or a little package of medicine Mm -hmm. just turned into a, you know, I came home one day and there was literally a million dollars worth of medicine in my garage. And everyone just looked at me like, you've got to, (laughs) you've got to incorporate to protect yourself, number one, and then you've got to move this stuff. So we created a program that would collect unwanted and unused blood clotting medicine from the United States and ship it overseas. And uh, ah, given wild. my con, yeah, and given the, all the contacts I have, uh-huh. I could just I could just put out a request, you know, through e- an e blast, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, we would have specialty pharmacies, hospitals, doctors, um, wow. the corporations themselves donated the medicine that we need. So it turned out to be just a fabulous program. Okay, so I mean, with the current state of the pandemic, has that been hard to distribute? Has it been harder, you know, to get more funding? Uh, no, funding's doing fine with okay. that. Um, okay. What's uh, th- we had a couple of hiccups with customs because of the uh, pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, we're f- it, overall no, we're having no problem getting medicine in. Mm-hmm. We've had a couple of problems with small, small donations to individuals where, uh, like in Vietnam, for example, one of my packages was just returned, um, and I and I heard from someone that they're worried about uh, vaccines. You know, uh, like people are trying to ship oh, uh, vaccines illegally, like somebody shipping a vaccine illegally into the country and vaccines wow. are very very different than clotting factor mm-hmm. um you know one is so they have to they're stored differently they're shipped differently so mm-hmm. i can see where customers would be concerned about that but overall no i have to say that everything's been going very smoothly wow that's wonderful that's great that even during even with the conditions that we are in now it's still you know the medicines that are needed are still getting through as well as you know the distribution of um, funds yeah, that I have to, I have to say that my Christmas present to my mom, ninety miles away, took like two months to get to oh, her, geez. and yet a package to Vietnam of medicine <laughs> got there in like two weeks. That's wild. Yeah, you know we've been going through the same thing. That's right. Wild. Yeah. So I, I think I, you can't, you can't, you know, like figure out what's going on with the postal service. But, I know. Oh my gosh. Um, so, is there anyone you would credit for where you or people you would cr- give credit to for where you are now? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, my grandmother, who's long deceased, and my mom, who's still here, uh, mm. for instilling the value of you know the 
the um, ethics and the value of giving back to others always. My, my mom's to this, she's 89 and a half and still to this day, constantly helping other people, even wow. though she herself has medical needs, but we'll never stop doing that. And part of that is our, you know, our faith uh, that we were raised in. It's, it's fundamental to our faith to mm-hmm. help others in need. So when you're given the diagnosis of hemophilia, um, I don't see it as a curse. I see it as a gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a gift you really want. You wouldn't, mm-hmm. you wouldn't put it on your gift list, but mm-hmm. When you get it, you like anything in life. You look at it as you can look at it any way you want. And I look at it as an opportunity to understand suffering better and to to give back to uh, that community. Um, and I would also credit. I mean, there's just so many people mm. that have helped me along the way. The woman Nancy Wright, who gave me the idea for this leadership program. I, wow, she opened doors. The mm. young man, the young man at Armor Pharmaceutical back in in 89, who said, yes, we will sponsor your book. I mean, he had no idea that 30 years later we'd be helping children all over the world. I'm still in contact with him, and oh, I always thank him and wonderful. always remember him. Yeah, I always give credit to the people who, who have helped me along the way. Uh, my, one of my biggest supporters has been Mr. Patrick Schmidt, uh, CEO of Triple F Enterprises out in Temecula, California. Mm-hmm. This man, I've known him for 25 years. He is... Um, you know, he's an incredibly wealthy person. He owns a private, semi-private company, a um, billion and a half dollar company. Mm-hmm. And this, he's, he did it all starting off in his garage. He is, uh, he's just been a supporter from day one. He mm-hmm. believes in what we do. Uh, again, both of us f- share the same faith. We're very, very devoted to our faith. We both believe in giving back. And mm-hmm. he, he is helping us not just financially, but also um, he's our biggest sponsor. He sponsors 189 children. Wow. And, um, he also is there for advice. He gives us business advice. He helps mentor us. Uh, just a fantastic person. That's amazing. So, um, yep. So he's been just a huge, it's just great to have someone like that as almost like a safety net, uh-huh. but also uh, kind of helping push us. Okay, this is what you should try. And, mm. you know, not afraid to let us fail. You know, you never mm-hmm. have to, you never, you should let people uh, attempt and let them fail because that's how we learn. So right. we've learned a lot and he's always been there for us. Um that's and then so all of cool. my all of my executive directors that we've had, we've had many, and they've all been great. They've all added something new to the program, mm-hmm. um, opened our eyes up to new things. So and we have a great staff. We have wonderful staff. So, so many people. Wow. You have a village. You're surrounded. Yes, we do. That's wild. Yeah. I love that. So, um, well, so do you, okay, so do you have any other goals ex- other than save one life and your um your uh, well la kelly communications do you have any personal goals at the moment yeah well i've decided not to be the first female secretary of state. <laughs> <laughs> I to that. um yeah personal goals I have, I have personal goals all the time mm. i still would love to speak a language fluently i semi-fluently still working on that uh spanish I can do a little bit, but I'd love to be able to learn it at a deeper level so I can actually converse with the people that we serve um, in the Dominican Republic and in wow. Central America. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd love to, um, you know, get out and travel more and not and see the people that we serve. I do. Uh, with COVID, of course, we haven't been able to travel, but also um, spend more time traveling for myself, which mm-hmm. uh, I haven't really been able to do a lot of. Uh, I tag on a couple of days here and there. So I can do some adventure trips. Mm-hmm. I, I love doing adventure trips. I I, I like uh, climbing volcanoes, uh, mountains. Really? Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Have you climbed any of those mountains? 
Yeah, I climbed um, Kilimanjaro three times. Uh, each time, Well, each time was a fundraiser for Save One Life, so we, it's, uh-huh. it turned into a major fundraiser. And I climbed a, a volcano in the Congo, the one that just erupted, actually, oh, wow. um, last month. The one that erupted last month. I oh, actually my gosh. That twice, and I've slept at the rim, and it is... Um, How is that? A, well, it's scary. It's a fully active volcano. Oh. You, it's hard to describe. You look over the rim. It's brutal to get to it because it's a seven-hour climb at a 45-degree angle. And then when you get there, it is like looking into the entrance to hell. It is a, wow. what they call a lava, a lava lake. It is a lake of lava bubbling like you'd see in a movie, bubbling. Oh, my goodness. It, like a tidal wave of melted rock, lava, uh, molten, wow. flaming red, flames leaping up from it. I mean, it's terrifying. And then you sleep in these metal tents at the rim. Wow. Um, yeah, so lava finds very adventurous. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. that's wild! Oh my gosh! Yep. I've been to the Andes. I've, I've climbed in the Andes. I'm mm. going again in January, and yeah, so I've, I really, um, I love, I love the outdoors. I love camping. I love um, hiking. So that's, that's, great. that's something I'd like to do more of. I love that. Oh, and what are your goals for Save One Life? Oh, Save One Life. My my ultimate goal would be. Um, I don't believe in that the like the United States or the Western world being like in control and then doling out money to these countries, I would love to see us be kind of the umbrella organization for independent safe on lives in different countries. Mm-hmm. So that the country I do believe that the countries themselves need to solve their own problems. They need to support their own people. Mm-hmm. And we're here to help. But mm-hmm. they, but fundamentally they should be determining their own destiny. Right. They get the help for their own people. Um, char- as Oscar Wilde once said, charity creates a multitude of sins. Mm. We should not just be giving money out to help people because that right. only creates dependency. Right. So my goal is, our goal for the individuals are to get them independent. And our, my goal for the program partners overseas is to get them to be functional on their own. Mm. That may not happen in my lifetime, but mm-hmm. I would love to see that happen. That would be wonderful. So if, if anyone wanted to get involved with Save One Life, what would you say to them? Well, first of all, they should um, go to our website, which is Save One Life, spelled out S A V E O N E L I F E dot net. Go there and check out the programs, check out the culture. Um, there's lots of children there that are looking for sponsorships on one of our pages, and just get a feel for what we do, and then see if it speaks to you. It's it's got to be. Um, something that you do not out of guilt but out of joy Mm. joy of giving joy of being involved we have um, a lot of children in need of sponsorships and people don't have to do the one-to-one sponsorship they can we've had we have uh, groups of people at a business for example that sponsor one child so everybody gets together and puts in some money and then they sponsor the child as a group Mm -hmm. Um, classrooms can sponsor a child Um, we can work on it that way you can uh, donate to the various fundraisers. We have adventure fundraisers. You can come on a fundraiser if you want. Huh. Um, we've got people who are going to come with us to Kilimanjaro, and we may even be doing a hike to Everest Base Camp in the future um, wow. for a fundraiser. So there's always something really exciting happening in that regard. And, you know, I would tell people read and learn about other countries and mm. try to understand their cultures and the need. You can read about hemophilia to learn more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's great. And what does the future hold for yourself? What do you see yourself in five years? Oh, I don't know. Uh, probably uh, probably by then I'll be r- wrapping up my business for sure. Um, I'm already downsizing it quite a bit because I want more free time mm-hmm. to work with Save One Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 
I volunteer for Save One Life. I donate to Save One Life. I help support it. But I'd like more time mm. to spend with it and to travel, especially to travel because nothing can take the place of one of us being there in person to mm. be with families. And when you go, when you make the time to travel, for example, like four hours out into the Kenyan countryside to see an impoverished family, um, mm. Of course, they don't always see themselves as impoverished. We see mm-hmm. them as that. They, for mm-hmm. them, it's like, yeah, I live in a village. What do you expect? Mm-hmm. There's, there's chickens. There's dirt. Yep. Um, and I love those trips because I love the people. I love meeting them. I love hearing their stories. Mm. Um, it, it makes such a difference in their life. It makes a difference in our life. And it teaches you. They teach you what they need and what how we can help. You can't sit here mm-hmm. in the United States and just dream up ways to help people. You've got to go out and right. see how they live. And I want to spend a lot more time doing that. And I think probably write up a book about my my travels, my memoirs, because I had some really crazy stories to share. That would be amazing. You know, that's something else that you, you can, that's a, that's a new adventure for you. You yeah, know, all your travels. True. I I mean, I would read it. I would love to read like all the countries that you've been to and the people that you've met and the cultures and, and how, you know, how else people can help. That's amazing. I would love that. It'd be nice too because when I started, of course, now a lot of those boys are grown up. They have their own children. So mm. you're coming uh, full circle. The one thing I do want to do before I leave this earth is get something going in Haiti. Haiti's been... Wow. Uh, absolutely neglected by the hemophilia community as a whole. Um, it, it, and there's reasons for it. It is a one, it's a little country. It is the toughest country I've ever worked with. Mm. I've been trying for 16 years to get something going there, and it is so, so hard. Why is that uh, so? Well, there's, you know, the first time I went, um, I found all the right people. We were all in agreement. The doctors and business people there were going to start a nonprofit, and then the earthquake hit. Oh, you know, so okay. there, there goes that, that all, you know, was uh, defeated for a while. And then I went back again and got another crew crew and we're all excited to start. And then, you know, cholera epidemic, and then mm. there's the hurricanes and then there's floods and then there's, um, you know, people, then there's kidnappings and there's gangs roaming the streets. Oh, if you're geez. a white person, if you're a white blonde person, forget yeah. it. Oh, you get kidnapped, you're held for ransom. Um, you know, we just read about someone that was attacked there. And oh. it, it's the last time I went there was two years ago. And we landed. And as soon as we landed and got out of the airport, the driver said, We're going straight to visit the kids. And then you're going back to the hotel and then you're leaving. Really? <laughs> it was a less than 20, yeah, less than 24 hours later, I did get to meet my two kids. Wow. But less than 24 hours later, we had to leave. And yeah, as we're driving, people are throwing rocks at the windshield. There's oh the UN gosh. tanks or downtown. I mean, it's, it's just, it's like the Wild West and it's wow. dangerous. Oh. So, um, but we won't give up. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, we do have a program there. We are sponsoring kids and we are the only ones in Haiti for mm-hmm. hemophilia. So, our goal, so one of the things we do is to go into these countries, do the groundwork, mm-hmm. build the infrastructure, and then invite the World Federation to come in with they're the big guns, you know, with mm-hmm. the resources come in and now they've got something to work with. So we're doing all the groundwork, kind mm-hmm. of putting the foundation in, mm-hmm. making it ready for the big um, nonprofits to come in. Wow. That's wild. So um okay, is there anything you'd like to do that you haven't yet done? Yeah, lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. That's a good question. Well, you know, like I say, write write a book on my memoir. It's mm-hmm. like a, a book, a book, not a, not a how-to book, but just a recollection. Mm-hmm. Um, what would I like to do? Uh, that you haven't yet a, tried. Haven't tried. Well, oh, oh, 
that's a good question. Um, I've tried a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, that's great. It is good. I mean, I've gone skydiving. I don't. I'm, diving is something I've never done, but I, I'm not really interested in that. But I've gone like skydiving. I've ridden a motorcycle. You know, you get those lists on Facebook of things yes. you want to try. Yes. I checked the box on a lot of them, the ones that I want to do. I think I just would like to keep climbing bigger, bigger mountains and mm. get better at mountaineering, which I wouldn't say I'm a mountaineer at all. Mm-hmm. I would say I'm a hiker, mm-hmm. but I would really like to get good at mountaineering. And I, I'm not sure if I'm getting too old for that, but <laughs> I would like to surely uh, give it a try. So is is there a mountain that you haven't um, climbed yet that you would love to? Oh, yeah, there's lots of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I've done Kilimanjaro. And that I know that mountain, and that's a great one to climb. Mm-hmm. Um I think I'd like to, so I think I'd like to do Antarctica. Ah, okay. Mount Vincent, yeah, I'd like to do Mount Vincent in Antarctica because I'm fascinated by the poles. I'm big into the, you know, reading about polar exploration mm-hmm. and history, and I'm just so fascinated. I want to do a a, a sailing through the uh, Northwest Passage. Mm. Um, I want to go to Greenland and do a dog sled. So oh, yeah, it's all kinds of adventure trips so cool. that I want to do. That's yeah. very cool. I would love to do that, the dog sled. I'd yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I don't know how long I'd last, but you know, I know, me I'd too. like to try it. Oh wow! Okay, so is there anything you'd like to say to the listeners? Well, you know, I don't know who your audience is. If they're if they're women or uh, mm-hmm. people who want to, um, you know, who are career focused and in, interested in, in you know creating their destiny, their life, I, I would just you know give to the younger people, um, especially. I would urge them to read. You know, mm-hmm. like kind of get off social media so much. I I just see so many people wrapped up with that. And it takes time away from the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are really reading, you know, pick up some great books, no history, no culture, Mm. no, no things that all the stuff you learned in elementary school and high school and junior high, those are important. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, read about read, you learned you touched on them in those times in your life, but go back and reread and learn more and find out Find your passion through mm-hmm. your reading. You know what mm-hmm. is it that you're gra- that you gravitate towards? What are you good at? And be flexible. Sometimes the things the the stars that we shoot for they mm-hmm. kind of move, mm-hmm. and like life throws you a curveball like it did me. And you've got to be able to um, look inside, look at all your skills. I was able to take the psychology, the business, mm-hmm. writing, all those things, and the contract negotiation, and bring them all together. And uh, my, my love for international work and bring all that in, all that together. So, you know, keep uh, keep it in mind that when life throws you a curveball and things don't go your way, sometimes it's a blessing in disguise and yeah. it's there for a reason. And mm-hmm. you can use that to your advantage. And at the same time, make yourself happy and be mm-hmm. fulfilled and earn a living and help the world. I love that. Thank you for that. So if you had one thing to change that you wish you had done years ago, what would it be? Oh, it would work out more. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty. I'm pretty what? active. I was, what? I was you, just, you climb mountains. You climb volcanoes. I know. I was just. I was just saying that to my boyfriend today. In fact, we were <laughs> heading off to the uh, hardware store, and I said, you know, looking back on my life, I've always been very active with my brothers. Of course, we used to ride motorcycles and horseback ride and all. Mm-hmm. But knowing what I know now, mm-hmm. and looking back, first of all, eat your fruits and vegetables. <laughs> you know. Eat, Eat better, cut out the junk food, mm-hmm. and keep moving. Work out. Like, I think when I got pregnant, I just took that as an excuse to eat as many Oreos as I possibly <laughs> could, which I did. 
Um, I would say don't don't veer from that. You know, eat t- because when you get to be my age, which is sixty three, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm very lucky to be in the shape I'm in. But mm-hmm. uh, not everyone gets lucky with good genes. Mm-hmm. You need to really take care of yourself. I, I, I'm still looking around me at, at all my friends who are this age, and everyone's starting to get health problems, and mm-hmm. a lot of it's lifestyle. Yes. So I want to tell the younger people. Do it now while you're young. Don't don't take your youth and your good health for granted because yeah. it, it will keep you, that body that you have mm-hmm. will keep you going the rest of your life if you take good care of it. I love that. And last question is, what advice would you give your younger self? Hmm, I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I would really do that because I don't, uh, I don't tend to look back Mm. And I, I'm good at giving advice to other people <laughs> um, because I might have said, hey, be a veterinarian. And that just wasn't in the stars for me. Mm-hmm. So um, I think I think what you do is you trust your instinct, which I've pretty much done. So I think my younger self always did that, always trusted my instinct wow. that, you know, even though mom wants you to be a teacher. And I thought, no, I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I still don't know why, but I just don't want to be a teacher. Mm. And it's a great profession. I love teachers and I love teaching. Mm-hmm. And I loved all my teachers, but I just don't want to do that. Wow. So um, I think, you know, my younger self already knew that. Just trust your instinct and keep an open mind and, uh, you know, in, embrace life, good mm. or bad. You know, just embrace it. Wow. Lori, thank you so much for coming on the show and spending such generous time with me. And I love all your stories about creating Save One Life and, and you know, helping so many um families and children in different countries that really need it. I wish you so much luck with continued success with Save One Life. And and when you do write your memoir, let me know. I want to have you back. (laughs) And so we can talk more about what other adventures that you've done. And good luck with all the upcoming adventures. I'm so blown away by like all that you've done. And I'm like, thinking to myself, all right, haven't done that, haven't done that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, you know, I, that, I think it's wonderful, and that's really amazing, and um, I can't wait to hear more about all the work that you're doing, that would be, that would be amazing. Thank you, Tess, I really appreciate you having me on the show, thank oh, you. Thank you, all right, have a good one. Thanks. That's our show for today. I've posted more information about Lori Kelly on RevWoman.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in every Thursday for another episode of Revolutionary Women. You can listen to Revolutionary Women on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Just a little note. I've launched a Patreon account to support the show. All proceeds will go to producing and editing the episodes to give my poor husband a break for being my personal IT and production department. He wrote this. The address is patreon.com slash revwoman.